and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne journalists Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Hello! Coming up on today's show, the great Australian toilet paper shortage of 2020, The Bachelor Australia's false start, and then how interxiety, yes, we just made up the word about internet and anxiety, has kept us up at night this week. But first, Michelle, how was your week? It's just dawned on me that we look the exact same today. Our hair's the same. We are practically wearing the exact same outfits, which is like grey print t-shirts with black jeans and flats. And I think the more time we spend together, the more we just morph into the same person. It's a sad, sad state of affairs. I mean, it's kind of expected because today's Zara marks the two-year anniversary of us starting Shameless. Shameless podcast is two years old, everyone. Happy birthday. It's two years old. It's such a shitty little toddler age as well, don't Do you, you think? Th- I can't – like on one hand, I'm like, that sounds like such a short amount of time. Then on the other hand, I'm like, no, two years is pretty long. But it feels like forever ago that we were working together full-time at Mamma Mia and that we started this and now to know that we're here in our own little office. It's been a whirlwind two years. Yeah. I feel like it's felt like a long time now. Mm. Like it feels like a long time ago that we weren't doing this and we were doing some other silly little (laughs) Bachelor podcast. So happy (laughs) two years. I would have completely forgotten if you hadn't have reminded me about three minutes ago. So thank you. You would not have forgotten, Zara, about our very exciting news, which we announced on social media. God, I sound like a boomer saying social media, which we announced on Instagram and in our book club Facebook group last week, which is that there is a book for smart women who love dumpsters stuff on its way in September 2020. I was going to say, there isn't yet a full book for (laughs) smart women who love dumb stuff. It is just about there. This is the thing that has been consuming most of our time, energy and tears over the last, what, nine-ish months? More than that, we signed the contract almost a year ago. Yeah, so it's been a very long time. Keep your eyes peeled over the next few months because we'll give you a bit more detail on everything you need to know about said book for smart women who love dumb stuff, which is absolutely not what it's even about, but that's fine. Yeah, that's not the tagline, but we're not going to give you any more details. We're just going to leave it at that. A book written by Zara and I is on its way, but that's all the information you are getting for now. September 2020. September 2020. I have a recommendation. I want to. Is it the book for smart women who love dumb stuff? Well, kind of, but not the (laughs) shameless book. I want to recommend Marion Keyes' latest novel, which is called Grown Ups. Now, it took me a while to get into this book. I feel like that's kind of a thread with me in fiction novels, though. I generally say that, that it takes me a while to get into it and kind of buy the stories of the characters. Grown Ups is over 600 pages long. Pretty sure that's longer than the Bible. It is one (laughs) of the longest books I've ever read. It's interesting because just looking at that book intimidates me. And I love Marion Keyes. Like, I love her interviews. Mm. I love her public persona. I Mm. love her writing. But just looking at you lugging that book into work, I'm like, oh, God. It's a struggle to bring it into work every day because it is a brick of a book. That said, I really genuinely love it. And I kind of love the length in that I've been reading it for two weeks now. I've still got about 150 pages left. So it's been like a nice winding read that hasn't been, I don't know, you know, those ones where you feel like you open the book, you close it and it's done and you forget about it forever. It takes a couple of days. I do like the pace of this in that it's gentler and it is reflective of everyday life and how things actually unfold in the real world. 
Well, that is interesting because I remember a couple of years ago you recommended to me Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine mm. and you said it's very slow and gentle but you'll like it. But I really struggle with slow and gentle books. Like I really do. That book, I mean, this is a complete other conversation that's taken place multiple times <laughs> in our Facebook group, to be honest, about whether you love or hate that book. I am somewhere in the middle. But I struggle with slow and gentle. Mm. So because I love Marion Key so much, I'm definitely going to try and read this book once you're finished. And there's so much wit and humour weaved throughout the story, which I just love Marion Keys for. How was your week? Tell me about it, aside from announcing that we've written a book together. The week was really good, especially today, because Michelle went to buy a coffee from our oh, cafe, yeah. from our local cafe near work, and instead of knowing your name, they just called you Zara's other half, Yeah, which I means walked- I'm the main character. <laughs> I've gone to that and cafe. You're- this is so embarrassing. I've gone to that cafe at least a dozen times, given them my name at least a dozen times, and they only refer to me as your, like, secondary person. You're my sidekick. <sighs> Second to me. Anyway, so that was a highlight of my week. I wanted to recommend, I recommended it in the newsletter, but I wanted to go into a little bit more depth today about a book I recently finished called My Dark Vanessa Mm. by Kate Elizabeth Russell. That book comes out today, which is why I'm recommending it today. So if you've heard of the book, today's the day to buy it. The book has so much hype around it because Kate Elizabeth Russell reportedly received a seven-figure advance, which is not that common in book writing. And so it is one of the most (laughs) hype. We did not receive that for anyone. (laughs) I can can promise you that. (laughs) That We should have asked for more money. (laughs) That blows my mind. Which is why it's one of the most hyped books of the year. So she spent 20 years writing this book, Mish. And it's a novel that opens in 2016 when at the height of the Me Too movement, the main character, Vanessa, learns that her former English teacher and an English teacher that she actually had a relationship with when she was 15 was then being accused of sexual assault by a former student. And so the story kind of follows Vanessa as she's coming to grips with that because she had always assumed that the relationship was consensual, which is a really interesting thing to read. And I think it's not an easy book to read. And I think it should come with a massive trigger warning. I think it could be a very traumatic book for a lot of people to read. But the nuance of abuse and grooming and Mm. assault and survivorship was so, so interesting in this book. Was it beautifully written? Did you like the actual prose? Yeah, I liked the prose and I liked the characters in that they were very complex characters Mm -hmm. and it was really interesting. Like the relationships were very, very complex. However, the other reason that I wanted to talk about this book on my commission is because the book has also come under fire a little bit or it did when it was first released because it was announced as one of Oprah's book club picks, which means, you know, it's going to be sold like a crazy amount. The last Oprah's book club pick though was American Dirt. We've touched on that in the podcast, which was slammed widely for appropriating a story which the author had no lived experience. Mm, And there was the argument that if you don't have that lived experience for the particular American Dirt story, you don't have the right to retell it. Totally. And so what happened when this was announced as Oprah's book club pick is Latinx author Wendy Ortiz wrote that the premise of My Dark Vanessa was eerily similar to her 2014 memoir called Excavation. And so Twitter, as Twitter always does, jumped on the controversy bandwagon and accused Kate Elizabeth Russell of plagiarism and accused her of being another white author that was co-opting and profiting from the experience of a marginalised community that she had no part in. Mm. She then turned around and had to admit, which she never ever wanted to do, that this story was very largely based on her own experience as a teenager. So she revealed that she had been abused by a teacher. Yeah. So she wrote in a blog post 
I do not believe that we should compel victims to share details of their personal trauma with the public. And she also added that she was really scared that opening up further about her past would invite inquiry that could be re-traumatising. So it's a really interesting time that we're in. I know that we were talking about the tattooist of Auschwitz only a couple of weeks ago about who has the right to tell different stories and it's almost like we're obsessed with authors adding themselves as a person that has the ability and almost investment in certain stories in order to be able to tell them but this one really did trouble me. Yeah it's interesting particularly when you're talking about fiction like often authors need to talk or convey stories that are different to their own and it's helpful for white people also to share stories that aren't just of white people but then you need to respect that community you need to do enough research there is such an amalgamation of issues that come along with that that are really important it's good that we're having these conversations though because I think it's something that needs to be addressed and it's really important going forward so as much as it's messy and it's complicated particularly when it comes to my dark Vanessa and Kate Elizabeth Russell it's worthwhile in the long run yeah I think these conversations are never going to be comfortable and it's sad that some people have to be hung out to dry for the end goal even though this story in itself had a little bit of a different outcome but Mm. I do agree with you I think generally we're finding some form of progress when it comes to who has the right to tell different stories that was very deep very fast. It's good that we've got a very sugary episode (laughs) in store for you guys today. Zara, we are starting off with the great Australian toilet paper gate of 2020. I fucking hate us. I hate us too. I'm sorry. Like we're going to get into this in a second. I just can't help but share my thoughts right off the bat with everyone. I think it's fucking selfish to go out and buy way more toilet paper than what you or anyone in your family needs when I now can't go get one fucking roll from my local Woolies. Are you out? We're out in our local supermarket. I just, I do not understand it. I'm sorry. I know I'm probably going to turn a lot of listeners off with this segment because a lot of you have probably gone out and bought like 16 packs of toilet paper. No, see, that is selfish. If you need to genuinely stock up on toilet paper, that is fine. If you are panic buying 16 packets, then we have a problem. And yes, I would go Sparta say it's selfish. My mum called me about this yesterday and ranted down the phone (laughs) saying she thought it was the most entitled thing ever and in protest she wasn't (laughs) buying toilet paper and I was like mum so fair for you to have an opinion on this being selfish. I'm not sure who you're sticking it to by not buying the toilet paper. Why am I now thinking about what like David and Trisha are going to be using for the next two She, she wants me over for dinner in two days. And I'm like, well, if you haven't stocked up, I'm BYO not BYO toilet I'm paper. Not coming. <laughs> we should obviously, Zara, address why we're talking about this. If you are not from Australia or if you are from Australia and you're like, what the fuck? I haven't heard about this, which would be impossible because there is no <laughs> toilet paper to buy anywhere. This is a response. This is panic buying as a response to the COVID-19, I don't know, scare what do we call it like the pandemic uh, the hysteria yeah it's basically that a whole bunch of Australians decided that we're about to hit the COVID-19 apocalypse and the obvious thing to do is to stock up with bunches and bunches of toilet paper it's really interesting to me because first and foremost I am incredibly embarrassed by this my best friend called me last night who lives in London and she was like what the fuck is going on back home (laughs) you don't even have any cases of coronavirus and I was like don't look at me I'm not buying it we do have cases of coronavirus but not that that. many yeah we have very very few compared to like Italy and I don't know I'm not a coronavirus expert but we have some not many exactly and the other part of this is why toilet paper (laughs) like when the apocalypse comes and I say when not if because clearly it's coming what is the one thing Michelle that you would stock up on like there are so many substitutes of toilet paper that you could use before you run out what would be the one thing that you would stock up on all right zombie apocalypse yeah I would go and buy rice I would buy toilet no you get one thing 
Oh, well, something to feed me. Oh, yeah, I'd choose pasta. Uh, yeah, probably pasta or rice. But I actually had to think about this, Zara. And I agree, toilet paper off the bat doesn't sound like the most logical thing to sell out first. But toilet paper isn't really interchangeable with other products. It doesn't matter if you pick rice or if you pick pasta or if you pick some type of legume. They all kind of feed you. They all kind of nourish your body. There are plenty of options. Everyone kind of has a preference with what non-perishable food they want to buy. There isn't really a substitute for toilet paper. There's one thing and we all buy it. I can't think of many other products. Think of milk. There's almond milk. There's low-fat milk. There's regular milk. There are so many different options with every other product that kind of meet the end goal. Toilet Whose paper- side are you on? I, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm on the side of thinking that people who did this are a little bit uncritical with how they behave, but I do understand why toilet paper was the first thing that people panic bought. I think it's interesting because you've still got tissues and you've still got paper towel. And no be- one's using tissue. Like I hate toilet paper. So do I, but you can. Like the, it's, it, it's stupid for us to assume there's no other alternative. If the apocalypse comes, you'd find a fucking alternative. There are photos, by the way, of people buying tissues and buying paper towel well, because there are no other options. I went to my supermarket last night. And Did we you were, buy paper towel? They were out of paper towel and tissues. <laughs> well, there you go. That's- it was which is not proving your point. It means that people are using them as substitutes. Anyway, the one thing I can't stop thinking about, Mish, is does this mean we're going to have a huge oversupply soon? Because people who have heaps of toilet paper won't be stocking up anytime soon, but toilet paper brands are trying to produce enough toilet paper for a stupid, stupid market. Mm. So we aren't going to – I think this will really slow and suddenly no one's going to buy toilet paper soon. I mean, our economy is struggling. One silver lining is that this would be a great bo- – like a little little burst in the economy for a short amount of time but you are right I'm sure people are not going to go through this amount of toilet paper over the coming week. Well I did find it also curious that um, and very clever that Who Gives a Crap which is a toilet paper brand took out an entire page ad in one of the (laughs) national newspapers on Friday so props to them. I did want to touch on very quickly like consumer psychology because there's a lot of thought around this as to why people are stupidly panic buying toilet paper and the BBC interviewed a bunch of consumer psychologists who say Yes, of course, it's irrational, but it's just a clear example of herd mentality whipped up by social media and news coverage. And I have to say, news coverage has a whole lot to answer for as to why you and my mother (laughs) can't go to the supermarket (laughs) and buy toilet paper. I've got a stat on this. So last Monday on March 2nd, toilet paper was mentioned nearly 500 times in the Australian media, in online publications, radio, television. Mentions of toilet paper doubled the following day and then by Wednesday hit over five thousand. Woolworths, Coles and IGA have been forced to bring in a purchase limit. You can only get four lots of toilet paper per customer. Toilet paper was the top trending topic in Australia on Google. It was also the top trending topic on Twitter in Australia. Hashtag toilet paper gate and hashtag toilet paper crisis. This is the most Australian story ever and it's so annoying. There was another argument from Professor Deborah Grace from Griffith University who spoke to the BBC who said this got legs so quickly because you notice missing toilet toilet paper more than you notice anything else that toilet paper takes up so much space in a supermarket that the minute it starts to go we all started freaking out because we could see it and then it just sort of snowballed from them it was the concept of FOMO in full flight because we could see it visually the one thread I've noticed I've read a few articles that talk to experts in behavioral economics and the one interesting thread that I've noticed this is looking at panic buying behavior in other studies and what they've said is that the people stockpiling toilet paper aren't stockpiling 
stockpiling necessarily because they think an apocalypse is coming or that they think that they are going to need it or they think they're going to be in quarantine or self-isolation because of coronavirus. They're buying it because they think everyone else thinks that. And because they think everyone else thinks that, they oh, think yeah. it's going to sell out and they don't want to miss out. It's that feeling of like, it's I'm going to get in first. It is FOMO. It's FOMO. I'm going to get in first or I'm not going to get it at all. And everyone else is an idiot. Therefore, I'm going to beat them and do it anyway because I don't want to be the person who missed the boat. It's quite doomsday and dystopian though, isn't it? It reminds me of like Lord of the Flies, <laughs> like this idea of every man or woman for themselves and everyone else can get fucked. It's so sad. And also it's the dumbest item as well. <laughs> So it's like so sad and also so stupid. I also can't stop giggling at all the photos of boomers literally like elbowing each other out of the way as soon as the supermarket doors open at 6am. Bless you, boomers. Bless you. I despair. Thank you, next bitch. And now it is time for the quick and dirty. Every week we give you a rough and tumble on the celebrity news cycle. Zara, Alice, fine-footed, McDonald, beach hero. What else is there? Could you please say that again in the correct form? Zara. No, no, the whole sentence. In the roughly and tumbling. <laughs> no, fuck you. Zara, Please. Alice, fine footed, beach hero, McDonald. What do you have for me today? Yeah, I think that's all my names. We should come up with some <laughs> new ones just to make this a real tongue tie. My first story for you Twitter tries out fleets, tweets that vanish after a day. That is from The Guardian. Speaking of boomer, this feels like some <laughs> boomer at Twitter was like, you know, we need the equivalent of Instagram stories. Yeah. So they've basically tried what Facebook tried. Remember how Facebook brought, are they still a thing? I'm yes. going to go into Facebook right now. Does anyone actually upload Facebook stories? The only time I see people upload Facebook stories is when they upload to Instagram stories and they're mm. automatically linked, but uh, nobody uploads directly to Facebook stories. Fleets, tweets that vanish after a day. Are they serious? Is it like a fling with a tweet? Why is it fl? Oh, so true. Fleet. Fleets. Like, it oh, sounds oh, like something that's here today I got and it, gone I got tomorrow. It, I got it. Fleeting. Oh, that's clever. I mean, I, I appreciate that old Twitter is still trying. <laughs> like it feels like they're the old dog who is trying to have some new tricks. But it's and like, if fleets are it, then I'm here for it's it. It's like three years late. But anyway, <laughs> good luck to Twitter and fleets. <laughs> Story number two, Kyle Sanderlands announced as judge on Australia's Got Talent. That is from news.com.au. Zara, I snuck this one into today's Quick and Dirty because lots of listeners, when this was posted on news.com.au, lots of listeners tried to put this in the Facebook group. We let one through as we always do. And the commentary began and lots of listeners were saying that he doesn't have any talent. Why would Kyle Sanderlands judge Australia's Got Talent when he's got none himself? And I just wanted to make a point that that's not true whatsoever. Kyle Sanderlands is not my favourite media personality by any stretch, really. We've done segments on him before. We don't necessarily agree with a lot of things he's done or said on his radio program. That said, it takes a fuckload of talent to create the country's highest performing radio program that has been the highest performing radio program for over a decade. I flatly reject anyone who disagrees with me on this. It's just interesting that people are suddenly assuming that even the judges of Australia's Got Talent even need talent themselves. Like, when has this ever been a conversation we've had about the judges of Australia's Got Talent? Mm. I mean, I'm in the same boat as you. Like, Kyle Sanderlands is not my favourite media personality. 
I think if we had a dinner together, we wouldn't really agree (laughs) on many of the same things. That said, he is one of the highest paid radio hosts for a reason. I mean, we unpacked this on the show a couple of months ago and there's a reason that he's getting hired for something like this because they think it'll pull ratings and it means that people are watching and people like him. I think it's unfortunate that that's the truth, but it is the truth. I think it's very easy for people to get stuck in their progressive bubble as well. The vast majority of Australians, I mean, the stats prove it. The majority, maybe not the vast majority, the majority of Australians love Kyle Sanderlands. They wouldn't be clicking in to listen to him every day if they didn't. So it's a little bit naive to think that he has no talent and he's speaking to no one because he's speaking to plenty of people. I do think it's kind of reductive to say the majority of Australians love Kyle Sanderlands because their ratings are so high. I think the majority of Australians love the dynamic between Kyle and Jackie O and the content they produce. I don't think that always has to be a personal thing, but that's another by the by. Story number three, the number of hours influencers spend on their phones each day is wild. That is from women. I'm so intrigued as to how they even get these stats. Like They did a study on hundreds of influencers compared to I think it was over a thousand average non-influencer muggles. Non-influencer muggles on average are on their phones for 3.4 hours a day. Influencers, particularly female influencers, are on their phone for over nine hours. It was nine hours between men and women. But if you were just looking at women influencers, it was over 10 hours. Now, I want you to go on your phone, Zara McDonald, and tell me exactly how many hours you have spent on your phone on average over the last week. Yeah, I just, I'm in shock because I think it's wrong. Have you? Are you looking over the last 10 days? I think so, yeah. Oh, oh my God, I wonder who has a higher one. What would you be happy with? Are you happy with it or are you upset about it? No, I'm very happy with it. That's why I think it's so fundamentally wrong. What? What is it? It says it's one hour and 10 nah, minutes. Nah, fuck off. That's so wrong. Give me your phone. See? Hang on. What? Yeah. I don't think that's right. That's so wrong. The stats must be wrong because they definitely spend more than one hour and 10 minutes on my phone. Who do you think spends more time on their phone? You or me? Because I'd argue we spend basically the exact amount. I would agree. I would actually say mine would be closer to three and a half or four. Mine is four hours and 17 yeah. minutes a day. Your phone must be fucked. I think something's wrong with my phone. It four would... hours and 17. I'm pretty happy with that. It's still a lot, but I think it's also part, when it's part of your job, I think it's a bit different. I did want to say a couple of things on this study. The influencers did have over 50,000 followers. So these are people who are clearly making significant coin or some coin from their Instagram feeds. The other thing that I find interesting is the way these stories are sold on the internet and from news websites kind of infers that influencers are vain and narcissistic for spending so much time on their phones rather than inferring that it's just simply part of their job and of course they're going to spend time on their phone. Like It's like a social media manager job. Of course you're going to be on your phone all day. If you're not on the phone all day, wouldn't we be concerned that you're actually doing no work? Very true. I'm actually quite surprised mine is four hours and 17 minutes. If the average person is 3.4 hours, I would think that mine would be about double that because as you said, Zara, I do most of the social content for Shameless. We are both on our phones a lot because it's part of our job. Exactly. Story number four, Katy Perry announces she is pregnant in Never Worn White music video. That is from E. It's unlike a celebrity, Michelle, to announce a pregnancy through some sort of work PR thing. I mean, I love it. Why not? Like may as well milk it for all you've got. And this baby is going to be bloody attractive. For those who have missed this, she is engaged to Orlando Bloom. That child will have some enviable genetics. I have to say, I actually completely forgot that they were still dating. They've done a good job at sort of flying beneath the radar. Well, they broke up, then got back together. Yeah. And then he went on the paddleboard with his pee-pee out. I'm pretty sure that that was before the breakup, wasn't it? Yeah, I know. I just wanted to put that in. (laughs) (laughs) He had absolutely no reason to bring that back. Congratulations to them both anyway. Story number five, my favourite story of the week. 
Laura Dern's goldfish dies at 14 years old. That is from page six. I am gobsmacked that goldfish live. Gobsmacked, you mean? Gold. I hate you sometimes. Goldfish live until 14? So I read this article, right? And apparently goldfish are meant to live till about 40 when they're not in captivity. No, they're not. When they're in captivity, I actually don't know. Oh, I read this from page six. I was like, fuck, where's my source? What if I've just pulled this out of my ass? The average life expectancy from this page six article says that a goldfish in the wild lives for 41 years. However, in captivity, that number decreases to 10 years. I don't even buy ten. Like this is so sad. Now that I'm realizing, I don't even buy ten years. All the goldfish that I had as a kid wouldn't have lived for longer than four or five, and that's an awful indictment on people having goldfish at all. That's because you kept eating them. I didn't keep <laughs> eating them. They just kept like I don't know dying but on it's me. It's true. Why don't we give a fuck about goldfish? I don't care about animals, but I wonder if goldfishes, goldfishes, goldfishies, gold what? <laughs> Goldfish. Goldfish eye. Goldfish eye. <laughs> goldfish eye are the cause I'm going to get behind. This is ridiculous. When goldfish go into captivity, they lose 30 years of their life. And once again, I agree with you. 10 years is a ridiculous amount of time. No goldfish I know has ever lived beyond the age of two or three. Also, second to that, we haven't even touched on the idea that Laura turns goldfish lasted 14 fucking years. I'm sorry. I just want to take a voice grab of you before you're like, this is ridiculous. I want to take that and just use that for every like hot take Zara has on the podcast for forevermore. Think about what you were doing 14 years ago. So I'm 25 now. I was 11 when this goldfish was born. Technically, this goldfish is a whitefish. I'm looking at the photo of it now. So it looks like the goldfish in the photo that Laura Dern shared to announce the goldfish eyes, goldfishy's death. No, fish eye is plural. Fish clearly. eye. Fuck. The goldfish's death. It just sounds wrong. She shared a photo that looks like. The goldfish is eating her scone and said, RIP to our amazing goldfish we love so much, 14 years. But the goldfish is white. Yeah, I think don't be discriminatory about goldfish. Goldfish can, goldfish eye can be any colours, can't they? Can they? Not sure. Do you think white goldfish live for longer than gold goldfish? Look, given I've decided that goldfish eye are the cause I'm going to get behind, I will come back with some more goldfish eye stats next week, inclusive of colours and greater depth into life expectancy. Have I told you about the time, by the way? We're about to wrap this quick and dirty, I promise you. But my mum wanted to get a goldfish and instead I swayed her towards getting us three hermit crabs. <laughs> I called mine Hermione Green. And it is to this day, Zara, no hyperbole, the worst decision I ever made in my entire life. Never get a hermit crab. Wait, what's wrong with a hermit crab? Because they need to like move shells. They outgrow their shell and then they need to get a new shell. And sometimes when I was changing their shell, they would escape. And on more than one occasion in our downstairs living room, we had no fucking idea where any of the hermit crabs were and had to go searching for them in like couch cushions and under the like and under the coffee table. And it is traumatic thinking back <laughs> to that time me. of my life. One one of my best friends, Emily, used to have a pet turtle and she was like 19 when she got a pet turtle. And for her 21st, it was at her house and I just spent the entire night in her room giving people a tour of the pet turtle's fish tank and letting people hold the pet turtle. I should have fucking charged them. How did we get here? Anyway, that is all for the quick and dirty. Bye. Coming up after the break, we have a new Bachelor Australia and his announcement has perhaps been the biggest mess in the show's history. Also, Zara and I aren't his biggest fans. Just going to put that out there now. But first, a word from today's sponsor. 
Zara, you and I have decided that 2020 will be the year we motivate each other to become more money savvy and get on top of our finances. So to do that, we have set ourselves a couple of goals. We sure did. The plan is to boost our financial well-being together, Michelle, because we really need the motivation and we spend so much time together. You kind of influence how each other spend. Absolutely. As you know, my goal is to hit about 50% of a future house deposit, which is very, very daunting. Ambitious. But something I'm adamant to achieve this year. What about you? You can do it. I trust that you can do it. Ambitious. Aim for the stars, my friend. My goal this year is to start investing in shares. The share market honestly terrifies me so much, but I know that wrapping my head around it all is going to be super empowering. Taking care of your financial health like you would your mind and body is so, so important. We always talk about well-being in relation to green smoothies and yoga and skincare routines, but I think it's sometimes in need of a bit of redefining given how much stress there is around money, Mish. Totally agree. I know for myself, money has always stressed me out a little bit, whether it's the thought of getting behind on payments or not budgeting properly for a holiday or being underprepared when it comes to finances. And that can be so incredibly taxing on your mental health. Exactly. That's why we, along with ANZ, are really passionate about setting money goals this year and every year to alleviate some of that stress. You and I might need a little extra motivation to push ourselves to reach these very ambitious lofty goals. So I propose whoever reaches their money goal first has to take the other one out to a restaurant of their choice for dinner. Deal? Deal. Done. It's going to be me. Thank you so much to ANZ for making this episode of Shameless Possible. Let me tell you a little story. Please do. (laughs) It's not how the intros work. (laughs) On Wednesday, The Bachelor Australia announced their newest bachelor. His name was and is still Lockie Gilbert. (laughs) And yes, he was a former two-time Survivor contestant. Things were all good and well and happy and fun until Survivor fans had one teeny tiny question. What the hell happened to Brooke? Yep, it was reported that right up until that announcement, old mate Lockie was still dating fellow Survivor contestant Brooke Jowett. Turns out Brooke had a few things to say about his new role as Bachelor. Mish, talk us through it all. Let me talk you through the timeline, my friends, because I've diarised it like the journalist that I am. So, Zara. Give the people what they want. Survivor Australia filmed from our sleuthing, we think, between August... And September, perhaps early October last year. And when we, when we say sleuthing, we went to a few Survivor <laughs> contestants' Instagram page and worked out when their interactivity died. Right. Foolproof. On the show, Brooke Jowett and Lockie Gilbert struck up a bit of a romance. Got a bit flirty. Yeah. Oh, yuck. That's gross. What? They got a bit flirty and they've been like cuddling. You needed like, sound effects. They've been canoodling. Canoe, canoe. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <I'm> trying. <laughs> Did you just say what just happened? Did you just say canoe, canoe? Because I'm trying to do <laughs> Get going. Ooh, okay, so I'm just going to speed this up. Basically, they were dating on Survivor, which was a few months ago, and everything seemed to be fine. Filming seemed to end, and by all reports, Brooke and Lockie were in a bit of a long-distance relationship. Brooke gave quotes to a magazine on Monday saying that things were complicated, but they still were trying to make things work. They were going to be going on holidays together. They were still very much in contact and liked each other. On Tuesday night, Brooke shared an image of the two of them embracing on Instagram and wrote, thank you for being my ride or die and the greatest big manly blanket I could have asked for. 
By Wednesday morning, the following morning, within 12 hours, Lockie was announced as The Bachelor 2020. Went up on Otto Ginsburg's Instagram page, went up on all the official channels. He was doing media for it. And at this stage, it seems like Brooke Jowett was completely and utterly blindsided, which she then confirmed that fact in a following Instagram post on Thursday, where she wrote, yes, I'm hurt, but I wish the best for Lockie. I always will. Secretly, I hope he stacks it and splits his pants on day one. Ha ha. I guess we had different things planned in our heads for what was to come over the next few months, but you can't be mad at someone for doing what is best for them, even if it does sting a little. I know I have bigger and better things in store. Maybe not bigger, actually. Lockie is pretty bloody big, but definitely better. I hope he finds what he's looking for. P.S. It looks like I'm now going solo to Bali next month. Any takers? So there was a holiday clearly booked. I'm really intrigued as to how long conversations go on behind the scenes between Warner Brothers and like the network and then also a potential bachelor. Like this kind of being rushed. I really can't imagine it being rushed. Surely there was a few months going back and forth, would you think? Well, yeah, because you would need to negotiate pay. There would be a whole bunch of process involved in signing someone up to a like, contract like this, which would be watertight. Lawyers involved, management involved. And also Lockie has a business. It's sort of like in a... a I'm going to say in an adventure business, but he does take people over to Bali and like shows them adventure things. It's like my worst nightmare when it comes to a holiday, but that's a very irrelevant fact. Shows them adventure things. <laughs> yeah, you know, like walking and stuff. <laughs> anyway, I did think that this was a beautiful way for Brooke to put it. I think that mm-hmm. she had every right to come out and say exactly how she was thinking or feeling. She didn't do it in a particularly salacious way. People were asking the question. People kept asking the question. Because as you said, on Monday in an interview with TV Week, she She said, it was instant, like, you're my person. We chatted a bit through Instagram beforehand. She means before they went on the show. Nothing crazy, just talking about travel, but I thought he was cute too. As soon as we got there, we were joined at the hip. It's still on the cards. We haven't completely written it off. It's just very complicated with the distance. It's just an obstacle at the moment. That was on Monday. On Wednesday morning, it was announced he was The Bachelor. What a mindfuck. What a mindfuck. But also what a masterclass in being dignified and classy and getting your point across that a guy has royally screwed you over without losing any face. Totally. And I think it's absolutely all about taking the power back, which is why I'm happy that she came out and addressed it. Because I'm usually against people being public about things. Like I Mm. really, really am. But I think if she wanted to take the power back and take the narrative back, this is how she was going to be doing it. This must be a nightmare for the show. This must be. I know that a lot of people subscribe to the idea that all publicity is good publicity, but it's just not. Mm. Most bad publicity is terrible for business. I think that, I mean, we were even talking the other day about whether coronavirus is going to be good or bad for the beer corona, but it's been terrible for the beer corona, Mm. which proves that all publicity is not good publicity. I think the Bachelor franchise has had way too much bad publicity for a couple of seasons in a row now. They're really going to be frustrated and tired by it. Yeah, I think the longevity and the success of the Bachelor franchise does really hinge on the love story. And you can hear Osher Ginsburg say that. When he does interviews, he communicates very, very clearly that the love story is central to everything that they do. And people are going to stop believing that if this type of thing keeps happening and men like Lockie are held up as the most eligible, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, the most eligible men in Australia, when I would argue that is far from the truth. Entertainment journal Peter 
Peter Ford, and I will put my hand up and say Peter Ford has some very interesting hot takes sometimes <laughs> and some interesting social commentary. However, all of that said, he is also a very trusted source of entertainment industry tip-offs. Well, he's been in the industry for a very long time. Yes. So he tweeted that Lockie had reportedly told friends and family that he was going on The Bachelor purely for fame and publicity and that he had even floated the idea to an ex-girlfriend that she should appear on the show with the hopes of reuniting with her. That is pretty damning. And I know this is silly and I know it's just The Fucking Bachelor and whatever, but I do still care about this show. Like I'm a bit of a reality TV purist and I hate the tacky, cheap path that The Bachelor has gone on over the last couple of years. Yeah, and it is a really hard thing to read at the moment. I think particularly because it's not going to be proven one way or the other. Do you know Mm. what I mean? And it does feel like an unfair sledging. That said, Matt Rogers, who also appeared next to Lockie Gilbert in the latest season of Survivor and those who didn't really see eye to eye, said on a radio show, there's probably a lot of reasons as to why he's doing The Bachelor and they're all dollars, which I found interesting. But also, how many times do we have to come back to the fact that somebody's absolutely allowed to do something for money? Like, you're absolutely allowed to pick that job because because it pays well. I do have to agree with you back to your end point, which is I hate the path The Bachelor has taken. I was Mm. the world's biggest Bachelor fan and it feels so obvious for us to be saying now that the show's lost its appeal, but I want wholesomeness. It's all I want in my life. And I do hold Warner Brothers accountable for a lot of this. And I don't want to sound harsh because I know that there are plenty of you listening to this that probably loved the most recent seasons of The Bachelor. Think like Sophie Monk and Honey Badger and a lot of the celebrity seasons we've had more recently, Angie Kent. They are on account of Warner Brothers taking over production of the show from Shine Australia. So Shine Australia had the first four seasons and those four seasons were pretty wholesome and pretty lovely television. One was a bit of a dumpster fire. He who shall not be named. But they had some great contestants come out of Blake Garvey's season. Sam (gasps) Frost... They had some you one- named him. Yeah, I did. Voldemort. <laughs> Voldemort no, of the Bachelor franchise. But there were some lovely women who came out of that season and some lovely moments and some lovely interactions that were shown. I think ever since Warner Brothers took over The Bachelor, they have almost derailed it entirely. And I absolutely don't enjoy watching it anymore. Yeah, and it depends entirely what you want out of reality television. And I think you and I want quite similar things. Or maybe we just want similar things when it comes to The Bachelor. I fucking love Wholesome Bachelors, right? I love it more than anything else. I love seeing a good marriage at the end. I love seeing a good baby at the end. Shout out to Marley May and her cute face, her cute squishy little face. <laughs> Sorry for being creep, Laura. So I think it really does depend. If you're watching reality television because you want to watch The Dumpster Fire, like you want to watch The Trash, you want to watch people falling apart on television, you want to watch the drama, then this is exactly the direction you're going to want to Mm. see it be taken. Mm. You and I started watching The Bachelor because we loved the love stories and you're obviously not going to like where it's been taken. I do think it's interesting though. You said to me before in some of the research that you found that the ratings are going up. Like Mm. people are genuinely loving the kind of twist and direction it's taking. Yeah. Well, like my favourite seasons when I think back were Georgia Love's season of The Bachelorette, Maddie J's season of The Bachelor. I think those two were some of the best Bachelor seasons that aired on Australian television. And yet they didn't rate very well. So we are very clearly in the minority here, Zara. I wonder if there are lots of people that are stoked that Lockie Gilbert is The Bachelor, not because they want to date him, but because it's salacious and it's juicy and it's drama. I don't think Lockie Gilbert is the country's most eligible number one man. Yes, he might be dateable. Yes, he might be attractive. But this is a man who, from some newspaper reports, was dating a bachelor contestant, an ex-bachelor contestant, at the same time as dating Brooke. Like, 
it seems like there's some very murky stuff going on before he was announced as the country's top pick. Well, yeah, just some confusing timelines, I think, for sure. Also, Mish, I would absolutely love to know if it's just you or I. Like, I would love people to come into the Facebook group and and tell us if they much prefer the direction of Bachelor and the Australian Bachelor, that is, and Australian dating shows, or if they preferred the kinds of Bachelors that we liked, Mm. if we are actually in the minority, because it does kind of feel like we are. Mm. That said, we do kind of enjoy the odd trashy reality show just before like three hours ago we jumped on mic you made me watch this scene from love is blind where one of the contestants kind of lost their hat over one of the (laughs) weddings and we sat there and really enjoyed someone kind of losing the plot on television it sounds Mm. like a terrible thing to articulate out loud yeah it does now that I think about it that was quite gross from us but it's funny because Kerry Sackville wrote a great piece about this as well in Fairfax this week that it's true dating shows are about something that's much darker than love when we watched that love is blind segment and when we laughed at it and joked about it and then went back to our days we weren't reveling in two people's love story we were reveling in someone's discomfort so then I wonder if it's just habit for us like where we started with the bachelor when it was wholesome so our initial perception of the bachelor was wholesome so when it was changed we had an issue with that rather than the trash tv I feel like the bachelor trojan horsed me (laughs) I feel like I got into the bachelor and I was like yes this is my wholesome television I'm signing up for babies and engagements and marriages and weddings and what I got is a dumpster fire of like articles on the Daily Mail sidebar of shame. This is a good point but Kerry Sackville's piece was actually really good as well. I wanted to bring that in too because what she wrote about is the difference between love and feelings on reality television and it was something I hadn't really considered before. This idea that dating shows kind of don't elicit love but they do elicit feelings. She wrote it can be pretty easy to elicit real authentic feelings in anyone. That's a really interesting point. I think Mm. that's true keep them up late past their bedtime and ply them with alcohol take away their phone so they can't call their family interrogate them for hours on end about their deepest desires force them to make big decisions in a short period of time make them spend entire days in the company of people they dislike now film it all and you have a dating show it's true these feelings are real but it's not love and we're watching people fall apart because they think these feelings are real It's true and it's so interesting that I'm fine for Love is Blind to be as trashy as they want but I'm not fine with that when it comes to The Bachelor. I am interested, what do you think makes a man the most eligible in the country for The Bachelor in 2020? What would you be looking for? What would your ideal or who would your ideal Bachelor be? Interesting question. Well, I think my ideal might not be the average. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I actually don't know. Maybe someone smart and funny and (sighs) I'm so basic all I can think of is Dr Chris Brown but I'm pretty sure he's in a relationship yeah I'm pretty sure he is too and that is such a basic answer and the one that new idea has been throwing around for about four years Mm. but it's probably because it's the only one that's actually been thought of or thrown around in the public domain Mm. I can't think of anyone else because it's also a big fucking label to put on someone like how can anyone be the most eligible everybody's kind of flawed you'd pick apart anyone would we ever have a gay bachelor or a lesbian bachelorette I would love that so would I but I just can't see it I can't see mainstream television doing it yet I feel like the pool of content Contestants is getting smaller and smaller every year. One way to open it up for sure is just to change the sexuality that we're looking at. We're also still having conversations about diversity on reality TV, in particular The Bachelor. Mm. So I can't see them changing the entire premise of one of the seasons, even though I would love to say it. Three, two, one, Zion! 
This week, we're doing the third segment a little bit differently. It's not hooked off a news story or a viral think piece, but off me spiralling in our office at lunchtime on a Thursday. You see, it had been brought to my attention that in 2011, I had left Facebook comments to a friend where I lightheartedly called her a slut. Now, in 2020, I wouldn't use that word to rib or joke about anyone, but discovering that past me did highlighted something for myself and for Zara. We are both living with intensity. That is a term we have coined to explain the gentle hum of anxiety that the ugliest sides of our former selves are diarized on the internet and we might not be aware that they even exist until it's too late. Zara, you had your own examples of intensity that did not include you calling people sluts. Can you tell me what they are? I can. I have to say, I also liked the term net regret, but I think anxiety <laughs> might be better. What do people think? Net regret or anxiety? <laughs> we could come up with a million terms about this and then not even get to the crux of the segment. I have so much anxiety, like so much. Some of it funny, like some of it looking back being like, I was an idiot. Mm. Some of it kind of alarming about the words that I used back then or the things I used to think or how narrow-minded and close-minded I was. I mined back through my Facebook timeline to look at some of my statuses and wrote them down. Did you write some of yours down? Yes, I do. Because some of them are ridiculous. Are we going with our own first? Yeah, go with your own. All right. Do you, want, do you want me to give you... I've got a few. Okay. On October 12th, 2010. Fuck, I hate myself so much. I wrote, Michael Catton, there's something about you that really fucking annoys me. Wait, who is Michael Catton? <laughs> That's Ted from Pack to the Rafters. Oh, my God. That's so mean. Okay, the thing that's interesting to me is that I was so mean about the most random people on so Facebook mean. status. Michael Catton, or is it Caton? I think it's Michael Caton, <laughs> you noob. I'm so sorry if I've got his name wrong as well because this is so mean that of is, me. Okay, so you would not believe the people I ragged on my Facebook status. <laughs> you will find this so funny. January 22, 2011, feels physically repulsed by the amount of sweat Raphael Nadal can produce. Like, why would I say that? Three months before that, October 2, 2010, can someone please give Dale Thomas a haircut? (laughs) That is so nasty. I've got another football-themed one. September 26, 2010, dear Nick Maxwell, I don't give a shit if you don't (laughs) want to play for a second week in the grand final. Suck it up, princess. The world would be happier if the Saints win anyway. (laughs) Suck it up, princess. Why was I so mad? Zara McDonald, April 11. 2010 just wore socks into the shower. <laughs> That's not nasty towards anyone no, at these least. these are just more embarrassing ones. October 21, 2009, exhausted from actually listening. I feel like that's a pretty sad one. My final nasty one. Michelle Andrews, July 20, 2010. Dear blonde girl on Australia's Next Top Model, stop crying. I'm embarrassed <laughs> for you and your family. Oh, my God, Michelle. You're terrible. <laughs> Why was I so mean? See, this is the other thing. So not only do you have real life statuses of things you've actually felt and thought out on the internet, I also have old hacks on here that are really severely inappropriate. You know when people used to hack your Facebook status? There was one from 2016 that if someone found would probably think that was real. Can't believe I used to find Leo DiCaprio hot. Then I found out he's one of those lefties that actually believe in climate change. Hashtag deal breaker. That is clearly not true. 
I thought it was funny, oh Mish, God. because we got some of our listeners to give us some of their biggest examples of anxiety. Some were hilarious. Some were definitely more serious. And I think there is such a sliding scale of anxiety here. As we have said, there are some where you actually can laugh at yourself and there are some where you physically hate yourself. Yes. So listener Georgia wrote this. When my husband was going through recruitment for a government job, they searched his Facebook page and questioned him about a post from four years earlier, which his brother posted when he left his computer open. It said... I love dick. <laughs> oh my God. No problem if you do, by the way. Just an interesting thing to put on Facebook. Absolutely. Listener Steph wrote, about 10 years ago, I created a group on Facebook that I thought was private and only visible to the people I invited. It was called, I'm so sorry, mum, if you're listening, blowjobs are a great last minute gift idea and I intended <laughs> to add my friends who I had the joke with. I didn't realise the group name was public until my boss asked me about it. <laughs> oh my God. Don't you have a story about Facebook no, groups? No, it's not. <laughs> Fuck you, bring this up. Facebook pages, sorry. Yes. Yeah, it's not even funny. It is funny. It is pretty funny. When I was like 14, I was at my friend's house for a sleepover and we did that thing that is this a thing that people do? We got dressed up and put our makeup on and took photos pretending that we were actually going out when in reality we weren't. I think that's a 14-year-old thing, yes. I, th- I think it is too. Anyway, we got back in our pyjamas once the photo shoot was finished and we decided to make a Facebook page that we thought was the funniest thing ever at the time. I found it yesterday. It has 46 <laughs> likes. What's and it called? <laughs> so shit. It's not even funny. It's just shit. It's when you laugh so much you let a little piss coming. <laughs> I didn't even- like why? why? I would have loved if someone could surface that and show it to us before you discovered I don't, it. See, I don't know if my name's attached to it, which is the best part. In comparison to Lisa Victoire, who said when she was 21, she was in a BBC article about how much money she spent on her dog. It's literally the first thing that comes up when you search my name. I obviously went to search <laughs> her name and the first thing that comes up is pampered pups. <laughs> Anyway, Mish. Oh, we do have some more serious ones, which I think really ties into the anxiety theme. Brittany wrote, what I've written online has ruined opportunities for me in the past. I got social media when I was young and thought that gay and the R word as slurs were okay and so many other comments too. I am constantly concerned that if I ever reach a certain level of success that something from when I was very young and naive would come back to haunt me. It is a very interesting way of measuring how a lexicon and vernacular has changed over time. Like there are words that I feel horrified that I once used and I guess it is a good thing that we've come some way to recognizing what's right and what's wrong and what's a really terrible thing to say and do and what isn't another one that I really related to was one from Courtney who said I used to do some writing freelance back in the day and while I thought it was funny and edgy at the time now I feel like a total dickhead who has so much to learn about the world times have certainly changed Mm. I relate to this so much because the first ever piece that was published under my name on the internet was something I fundamentally don't stand by anymore and written with a headline that I never agreed to. It was really sensationalised. And I got so trolled for that story. So trolled. My first ever experience on the internet was one of like really severe feedback. And that is hard to reconcile now because I don't think the take was that terrible. I think I'd be way more nuanced about it now. But I do think that the way that it was packaged and sold was really kind of dangerous for young writers. And I think while it's exclusive sometimes to the media industry with young writers and how they can be desperate to get a byline and desperate for any article to be published so they create opinions or make opinions more salacious, I do think it's a pretty relatable experience to have things on the internet that you just don't agree with anymore. I agree with that. And I think this is an interesting point because so many people don't trust the media and don't trust journalists. And there are a bevy of reasons why that's totally legitimate and totally fair enough. However, as a young 
journo when I was very nervous and didn't really have a voice and didn't know how to stand up to my bosses, I used to have editors literally ask me to write opinion pieces that they had that they wanted me to write. So some people would pop up in Slack and go, this is the opinion we want. Can you write it? And if I didn't agree with the opinion that they had or that they wanted me to write to either stir a bit of controversy or piss people off or appeal to a certain demographic, then I had to come up with another kind of opinion that was on the flip side of that. So I had to have an opinion on something that I didn't necessarily care about, didn't have the time to read enough on, that I had to concoct for the sake of clicks. It's scary. And I think there are so, so many articles that I've written in my time that I would be ashamed of if I found them now. And I think that's, again, like a pretty hard thing to reconcile with, to look back and think, I actually don't think I was doing anything particularly helpful in the world when I was writing that. But how much power do you have? Like how much power do you have? And that lives on the internet forever. And I think there are a lot of lines and a lot of streams of work now where people's work does live on the internet. And I think there's a lot of regret around that. I think it does concern me hugely that young people are putting names to things out of a desperation to make it. Like when we used to work in digital publishing, we used to see interns walk through the door that would like mine their lives for content Mm. in order to just get a byline. Like here, I'll give you the most controversial part of myself or I'll give you the most salacious part of myself just to get my name on this website. I mean, I am pretty sure in the first year of uni and I was desperate to be published on the most fucking random blog on the internet that I wrote a story saying, and I don't even know if this is funny or sad in hindsight, that I didn't consider myself a feminist, that I preferred the term equalitist because feminist. Feminism was too divisive. Can you imagine if that was dug up now? It's so bad. It honestly is. I remember standing around in some all editorial meetings where interns were asked to mine their lives, like you just said, and I can clear as day see some of those headlines and some of those stories in my head right now that really stood out to me at the time as even being too personal. And these were really young girls making these decisions. And I would love to actually reach out to them today and see how they feel about those articles and those photographs and those headlines existing on the internet. It's it's scary that we can make these decisions so young and they live with us forever. However, a flip side on that and a positive angle to take out of this is that the stuff that I was writing on Facebook or in blog posts or in news articles seven or eight years ago, yes, it's hard to reconcile with the person I am today, but it's also a really great touch point for how far I've personally, and I'm sure other people have come in that I have written things and I have done things online that I would never do today. And I think the way that I, and I'm sure everyone listening to this, has grown over the last decade has been great in that the dial has been shifted so, so much from the way we speak to the way we think about the world to the way we consider other kinds of people and other lived experiences. I really do think for all the internet has done to make us self-conscious about our bodies or compare ourselves or use Facetune or feel isolated socially. It's also broadened our perspective a lot. And I think the way language in particular has changed over the last decade has been far more drastic and dramatic than probably any other point in history. And I think that's because the internet really has given us access to so many other points of view that have been really important to educate us all. I agree with you. I think it's wonderful to see how things have changed and having access to a physical timeline that can see our perspectives evolve and also can see us change in maturity and grow in maturity. I just worry and kind of despair 
that in the era of cancel culture that we're in, that won't even matter. Like it's one thing for us to say right now, isn't it wonderful to see how far we've come? But if people can still lose their jobs for stuff that was dug up years ago, then I wonder what is good about this existing physically on the internet. I do actually really want to know what the statute of limitations on fucked internet comments Mm. is. Like how long do we give people? Is five years enough? Is 10 years enough? If you said it 15 years ago, does it expire? At what point do your offensive things not matter anymore? Because in politics, it feels like they always do. Like if a politician's past comments are dug up and it's found, they almost always lose their job. Yeah. And it's hard. We can't really compare today's standards of wokeness and progression to 10 years ago. Like at 25, I am not the person that I was at 15 writing some of those statuses that I just read out. And I think this has even been good to break the fourth wall for a second. I think it's been great for you and I, Zara, in that we are cultural commentators. We are pop culture analysts. And it's great for us to be reminded what we were writing 10 years ago and what we were doing because it probably allows us to be more sympathetic and more understanding when it happens to someone else. But not even 10 years ago. I would say two years ago. I would say that there are even segments in the last two years that we've done that I would change today. So it's a double-edged sword, as you say. As always, we'll have an episode thread in our Facebook group to have a conversation about this. I want you to come and talk to us, not just about (laughs) your examples of anxiety, but also what you think that statute of limitations might be. Mm. Like at what point do fucked comments expire and at what point do we sort of exercise compassion? For now, that is all we have time for. Thank you so much for listening. As always, please, if you want more from us, subscribe to our shameless newsletter. Every Friday morning, we send it out and it includes a column from myself, Michelle or Annabelle, along with a recommendation of what you should read, watch and listen to on the weekend. Subscribing is free. That is free and very, very easy. Just check out the link in our show notes. That's all. Bye, guys. We will be back in your ears on Thursday as always. Woohoo! Yay! Yay! (laughs) This episode was recorded at JustCo, Asia Pacific's leading co-working space provider and the home of our office. Shameless listeners can experience a week in the JustCo community with a free trial at any of their Sydney or Melbourne centres by following the link in our stories. And yes, guys, there is a table tennis table here and I beat Zara on it all the time. Oh, hi, it's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week. Now, every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time <laughs> to be in your ear holes. So essentially, <laughs> each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.